races on, and Max Verstappen turned a disappointing qualifying into a triumphant race in the Mexican Grand Prix to extend his World Championship lead to 19 points over Lewis Hamilton. But how did Red Bull turn one-lap struggles into race supremacy, and was there any way for Mercedes to turn a front-row lockout into victory? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and many more are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Well, Scott, you're, you're joining me in my hotel room in Mexico. You've been giving my podcast recording setup a little bit of stick. Yeah, uh, for the listeners out out there, I will uh, I'll paint a word picture. The uh, the 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 MacBook that we are using to uh, have this uh, the video call and the, the script is based on is perched precariously atop a vertically standing suitcase uh, with wires uh, coming out and in different directions as well. So not only uh, do we have an architecturally unsound base for the laptop, we also have a few potential triggers for it to be pulled in different directions. So I am expecting carnage as this podcast uh, continues. Well, at least if there's a crash, people will know what's going on. But yeah, I'm sort of perched on the bed. Scott's sort of perched on a square stool thing. I brought a stool in from uh, my hotel room. It's a great hotel because Scott's made some enemies here, some very, very noisy people who like shouting at 4.45 in the morning. Yep. Uh, I even uh, grassed them up. I called the hotel reception at 4.45am the other day to say, sort this out because this is ridiculous. So Scott's that person. Mark Hughes, no such dramas for you? Um, No, no. uh, The opposite end of the energy scale. It's uh, 20 to 2 in the morning UK time. So uh, if I sound a little bit low-key, it's it's just because of that. It's just a... um, because of the Earth's rotation and its relationship to the sun um, and the, the time differences that result between Latin America and the UK. We, we've swapped uh, roles for this one, haven't we, Mark, after mm. uh, you were in Austin. I was at, I was yeah. at home for that one. So, so don't worry, I, you have my full sympathy. <laughs> I know exactly how you're feeling. <laughs> we're also going to find out if we have any Flat Earth Theory fans listening to the podcast. Yeah, so, uh, yeah good point. If, if, if you want to challenge, uh, challenge Mark Hughes' interpretation of the world, please feel free to get in, uh, in touch with us. <laughs> Right, well, let's actually get on with things. Mark, heading to Mexico, everybody expected Red Bull to dominate. Free practice did nothing to disabuse us of that notion. Then we had a Mercedes front row with the Red Bulls all over the place in qualifying. But in the race, it pretty much matched our expectations again with Verstappen winning from Hamilton. So can you explain why this happened? And just to start off with our our questions from the race members club, Steve Bishop asked, did did Red Bull sacrifice a front row start in qualifying so they had to slipstream at the start of the race? I don't think they did that, Steve, no, uh, because... Uh, you 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 you're sort of um, you're not having destiny in, in your own hands. Then you are. You, it's um, you are much more likely to retain the lead if you, by locking out the front row, which Red Bull should have been capable of doing, than by banking everything on uh, slipstreaming from the second row. But uh, although that worked on this occasion, um, thanks mainly to Valtteri Bottas's inattentiveness to what was going on to his left, and um, so. Yeah, I think the outlier was uh, Saturday qualifying and Red Bull, by its own reckoning, lost something like a tenth um, from its potential. Uh, And I wonder if this was to do with them being distracted by those um, rear wing problems we're having Um, and perhaps not enough thought being given to how the increase in the track temperature, because it really ramped up uh, into Saturday afternoon, um, impacted upon the uh, outlap preparation and what needed to be done with um, pressures, etc. on that, you know, going into that vital preparation lap because basically they lost control of the rear tie temps and they were just 
Yeah, they were nowhere near the, the the balance thing that they had been throughout Friday and into Saturday morning, and even even in Q one um, before the temperatures really came up. So that that was the main reason. Now the the increasing track temperatures did bring the track to Mercedes. Um, in the fact that they, they, they the problem that they had been having with with their uh, setup and their uh, concept of car was getting the front tires up to temperature in time for the beginning of the first lap without the rears um, becoming too hot. So they actually benefited from an increase in track temperature. Suddenly the performance was there on the first lap, or it was for Valtteri Bottas at least. So Merck improved a little bit, and Red Bull dropped a lot. We can see that in hindsight. And then in Sunday, uh, with, um, you know, the, with the lessons learned um, and a better understanding of uh, what, what had gone on, uh, we reverted to form, and, and it was it, they were able to demonstrate that because Max won the start um, from getting a lovely slipstream from the two Mercs, and then just flicking left and being on the perfect racing line, and just standing late on the brakes, and just going off and into the distance and totally dominating the race. And from there, Lewis was just um, in, in a rear guard action against the other Red Bull, and uh, once. Bottas was spun out at the first corner as well. It was a two against one. So yeah, it was there was very little tension in the outcome of the race. Yeah, it was pretty much all over after the first corner, wasn't it? But one other thing, Scott, Gary Joyce from the Race Members Club asked us about the Mercedes struggle, said it became clear that Mercedes wasn't suffering as they have in previous high altitude races. What did Mercedes do to fix their problems? And does this mean we can throw out the form book for Brazil? Uh well I I, I wouldn't say they they, they weren't suffering at all there's there's on on the power unit side it's clear that the deficit there wasn't as severe as it was was before but i think other other characteristics like the amount of aerodynamic load that the two cars produces uh, uh, in these conditions was 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 still a factor but on the engine side I, I, I couldn't say specifically what mercedes have done but i asked toto wolf about this on saturday after qualifying because there'd been a couple of hints earlier in the weekend that the Mercedes engine teams weren't expecting to have the, shall we say, the usual um, issue relative to the other power unit manufacturers this weekend. And um, Toto said that they have worked to make the the engine work better at, at higher altitude. He says that they've optimised it. I don't I don't know exactly what they've done, um, but it seems that the limitation they had before, which um, the, the power units are so complicated, but I think the I think it's fair to say that the primary issue was with the turbocharger and making not quite having the not quite having the same room that um other the other power units like the Honda did to um work the turbo harder and 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 compromise for the reduced air density at high altitude for what for whatever reason not again not entirely sure how they've done it but they seem to be able to make it work better so they're definitely encouraged much more encouraged um, about it and they do think that that will help in in brazil as well so i i, I still don't think like the i wouldn't say like 100 percent of the issues that they've had in the past like it's completely gone now but it certainly seems much more competitive it just didn't have an answer for the red bull this weekend and we should remember as well interlagos is 
add a bit of altitude, but it's not anywhere near Mexico City. Mexico City is 2,200 and something. Interlagos, from memory, is 800-ish metres, I think, above sea level. So still a factor, but not to the same uh, degree. And, Mark, although the race was relatively simple, obviously there was a little bit of interest in terms of the pit stop timings of Lewis Hamilton and Sergio Perez as they battled for second. So Matt Wyatt says, if Red Bull had reacted immediately, could Red Bull have secured Perez' trap position by bringing him a lap after Hamilton's pit stop? It feels touch and go to me, especially as they wouldn't have known how much time Lewis would lose behind Leclerc until it was happening. I think it was an 11-lap gap between Hamilton and Perez's pit stop in the end. Yeah, it's just two different ways of going about the same thing. But yes, you're right. It, the, it may have been possible um, in in the moment because you didn't know that Leclerc was about to pit on the next lap and had he not done so, yes, it might have been possible to take advantage of that. Um, but it was um, the way they did it was just give them a big uh, tire advantage in the in the last stint. So, yeah, I think they preferred the um, probably the the more secure way of doing it. Although it still wasn't enough, it didn't it didn't allow them to um, to overtake as you saw. Uh, uh, yes, it was it, that would have been a also a feasible way of going about it. Yeah, and there was that great chase of uh, of Hamilton by Perez at the end with that tyre offset. Obviously, he got close. The crowd were on their feet cheering, willing him on, but it never quite happened. But a, a good weekend still for Perez. First Mexican driver to lead his home Grand Prix, I think. The first one to finish on the podium in Home World Championship Grand Prix. And he got Red Bull to within a point of Mercedes in the Constructors' Championship. So a, a pretty decent weekend from Perez, you'd have to say, wouldn't you, Mark? He's, he's really coming into his own, isn't he? Yeah, and he was saying at one point in the weekend... Um, He's a little bit annoyed with himself at how long it took him to work out how to, to you know, drive this style of car. Um, and he feels he's now a much more complete and better driver than he was 12 months ago. And um, it, it, it's clear it is a, an unusual car. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a very uh, it's an extreme interpretation of the high rick. And that's been developed in that way more or less in conjunction with how good Verstappen is in that in, in living with the instability that it can come the rear instability that can come with that concept of car and that's that makes it very very difficult for a, a driver that's not at a Verstappen level um, and it's um, there's been some going back on the sort of rewinding to make it less extreme and there's been some adaptation from Sergio himself, and in combination, and together with a bit of confidence um, increase, it's um, yeah, it, it, he's now a much more respectably close to Max than he has been for much of the season. Yeah, three consecutive podiums for him. He's doing the job that he's needed to do. And it was just brilliant for the event to have him on the podium. You could hear the, the fans cheering on their feet. We weren't too far from the stadium section in the media centre and they were really delighted by it and cheering him on the podium, which actually made it quite difficult when uh, I was down trying to interview drivers after the after the finish. It was very, very difficult to hear anyone. But yeah, it's great to see a home crowd getting excited. But Scott, although the race was relatively straightforward at front, the one interesting hypothetical about the race is what would have happened if the start had gone a little bit differently. Did Mercedes make it too easy for Verstappen? Danny Elliott from the Race Members Club refers to Wolf saying Bottas could have done more and suggests that Bottas seemed more interested in where Hamilton was to his right and left of a Stappen-sized gap on the left. So do you agree that Bottas could have done more to protect a 1-2 at the beginning? of the race? I think Bottas could have done a little bit more. I think the problem, I think where he got caught out was there, there's a moment at the start where Verstappen's properly tucked up 
in his slipstream and it's almost like Bottas almost moves to the middle moves over a bit more to the to the right as if he thinks that's going to cut Verstappen off maybe he thinks I think he just misjudged Verstappen's exact position and what he was doing because basically just as Bottas is doing that Verstappen either at the same time or instantly in reaction to where the Mercedes is moving jinx left because Bottas has opened up a a car width on the on the left-hand side. So I I do think Bottas probably could have judged that a little bit better because the timing of that move is is absolutely absolutely crucial because it, that straight is so wide you you can't cover the the full width. The the crucial thing to do is to be in the right place at the right time to to block Verstappen's momentum. You know, obviously you don't want to be weaving down the straight or anything like that, but it, it's about the right movements at the right time and Verstappen got it to absolutely perfectly to, to, to get alongside Bottas. And it was interesting hearing Wolf talk actually, because he, he was, I, I do think he was disappointed that, that Bottas did that, but he was also speaking in, um, in a plural sense, not, not, not singular about, about Valtteri a couple of times. He talked about, um, he said, you know, we, he said we had two cars uh, on the front row and we basically like the sea opened up for, for, for Verstappen and then he said if they had been more to the left there wouldn't have been a gap and obviously you can interpret the they there to mean Bottas and Verstappen but equally it also could just be Hamilton and, and, and Bottas because obviously Hamilton was right on the inside so it was it was actually a bit difficult to work out whether Wolf felt that both of them should have been a little bit further to, to the left and then they could have managed it slightly better that way I guess the the argument Bottas would make is that Lewis was so far over to the right-hand side, Bottas had to move over to the middle a little bit to stop a car width being opened up between them in the middle. And then because he moved over, that opened up the the, the gap on the, the left. Whichever way you want to try and apportion blame there, the point is that they didn't manage it perfectly. And that's what allowed Verstappen to to slip past and then absolutely nail the braking into into the first corner. Obviously, Bottas was very, very cautious in, in, in the middle and Hamilton was understandably cautious on the, the dirty side of the track. So, yeah, Verstappen took full advantage and once once he got ahead, it was, uh, yeah, I think the, the race was over pretty quickly. Trouble is, even with two cars on the front row, that's only four metres of the track you can cover. So there's going to be a gap of some sort somewhere. They could have done better, but you can't cover all bases. Interesting question, Mark. If there had been a track position advantage for Mercedes, whether it's 1-2 with Verstappen third or maybe one in the leap with Verstappen second, would that have made any difference? Or did the Red Bull pace just mean this was almost an unwinnable race for Mercedes? Uh, the latter, yeah. They I mean it would have been done around the pit stops, especially if they had two cars to pincer the Mercedes. It, it was just, yeah, it was. Um, it would have been a miracle for, in hindsight, it would have been a miracle for Mercedes to have pulled off um, any any win from even even with track position at the start. Yeah, you'd have to say splitting the Red Bulls was a good result. I think Hamilton being second, they'll take that as a decent bit of damage limitation. But of course, Verstappen will be delighted to have won. Fantastic performance, really good move at the first corner. He made the most of it and, and that's given him a, a bigger championship lead. But the reason there was only one Mercedes up there, Mark, is that the other big drama at the start was Bottas spinning after the contact with Daniel Ricciardo, who lost his front wing. They were both in the pits at the end of the lap under the safety car. Ruinous for both their races. They end up finishing 12th and 15th, I think, respectively, albeit with Bottas sacrificing 13th to take a couple of pit stops and fastest lap. No action from the stewards on that. Do you think Ricardo got away with it there? 
Uh, yes, I mean, if you had to attribute uh, a blame, it was definitely Daniels. He he braked just about as late as it was feasible to brake going into there, but uh, there was always going to be another car cutting across him by the you know when he when he got there, given that it's the the first corner of the race, and yeah, unfortunately for Valtteri, it was him. So yeah, um, that that was pretty much one hundred percent. Uh, on on Daniel that one and uh, yeah as as you say it, it ruined both the races. Well, Scott, you I think spoke to Michael Massey at the end of the race about that decision. So, what did you think? Because if it's a hundred percent to blame at the start of the race, that there is the principle that that's a that's a penalty. So, do you think he could have had a penalty there, or do you think it was a fair let off? Well, he could have done because Pierre Gasly got a penalty at Istanbul for I, for an incident I really didn't think he was a hundred percent to blame for, and yet the stewards thought he was when he hit Fernando Alonso and, and spun him at, at the start. But so, so Ricardo absolutely could have. And based on that ghastly precedent, I was surprised that it, this incident wasn't even investigated, let alone get a penalty. But looking at it in a bit more detail, I totally get what Mark's saying there. Obviously, like Bottas isn't to to blame for existing and Ricardo's the aggressor on the inside. But I think, I think the key di- difference, the reason it, it wasn't viewed as um, him to blame and it was viewed as a racing incident... Is because while Ricardo did have that lockup, he then got the braking back under control, got the car slowed down, and was making the apex of the corner on on his own. And it seems that that was the crucial thing. The stewards did look at it briefly; they didn't investigate it fully, but because it was noted, they had to take a look and see if it merited a full investigation. And they just took one look at it, saw that Ricardo was going to make the corner. And then just decided it was a case of it was just it was a racing incident because it was just two cars ending up in in the same place. And I I I feel for Bottas. This is a bit it's but Valtteri Bottas sympathy corner <laughs> again. Um, there's a there's a there's a little bit of him. You could argue there's maybe a little bit of him turning in as if no one's going to be there, which is a bit risky in 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 that kind of situation. But he's he's certainly um, he's certainly not to blame. And Ricardo said it's not it's not Bottas's fault. He Ricardo was the one who hit him, but I could at least see afterwards having reviewed Ricardo's onboard and heard from a couple of people why it was interpreted the way it was. Whereas at the time when it happened, I thought it was a slam dunk penalty. Ricardo, I think, was a little bit more concerned about it in the moment than he was when he saw the replay after the race. I think he felt maybe he was he was going to be in trouble. Then he saw it after and he said it was just a little bit too many cars going into going into one. So one of those one of those things. So. Yeah, he he was less unhappy about it, but of course it ended up then with Ricardo driving round. He had another clout, I think, at turn six, uh, but he picked up a little bit of uh, floor damage in that as well, which didn't help. And then Bottas spent the whole remainder of the race staring at the back of uh, uh, of the McLaren of Ricardo, so they they didn't really get anywhere. But we've got a question mark from Mike Meredith from the Race Members Club, who says, "Does the fact that Bottas came into the pits twice to take fastest lap away from Max, and of course the extra point, show that this point for fastest lap isn't rewarding competitive advantage and should be scrapped?" Before you answer, I have to say Gary Anderson was very unhappy about this. If you follow Gary on Twitter, you'll see he was, with some justification, unhappy with a, with a driver being able to do that. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm ambivalent about this point for fastest lap. It sometimes enlivens the race isn't it it sometimes brings a little bit of um jeopardy in and, and the knowledge that that one point or that two point swing in in some cases could be deciding a championship does bring with it a little sort of free son of, of uh, extra interest i think um 
but it's yeah, you could argue it's it's um it's a little bit artificial. Um but yeah, I, I'm not I'm certainly not as angry as Gary about it. Um and I, I wouldn't be getting my starting my chainsaw up to, to cut the rule book up about it. Didn't didn't Red Bull do didn't Red Bull sacrifice Perez's race earlier this season at Silverstone? Did Gary get as angry about that as he did about this one? I didn't really like it, but I, I don't object to anything the teams do. I've just I've always disliked this point because too many times it gets taken by whoever of the leading drivers happens to be doing worse and is at the back of that little group and has a gap. And obviously Bottas was giving up nothing. He gave up 13th place, so he sacrificed nothing for that. So I'm not a big fan of the rule. I've got no problem with what Mercedes did. That's the correct call for them to do it. But it looks a bit silly when you have a driver making two pointless pit stops at the end of the race just to have a, a go at faster slap. Although there was the, the comedy of the shenanigans with uh, Bottas and Verstappen on track. So it's it's all part of the fun and games. I'm just not very keen on it because qualifying today for for being fast over a single lap. And all Bottas had to do was put in a solid lap. He was about 1.2 seconds faster. Verstappen, it, he could not have beaten that. So it's it's too it's too circumstantial, the fastest lap point for for my liking. But I'm not quite as angry as Gary. But uh, but yeah, check out Gary's Twitter feed to, to see what he's unhappy about. We might get him to write something about it as well. But Scott, behind the lead three, Pierre Gasly described this as the perfect weekend. He finished fourth after qualifying fifth, beating the Fries and the McLarens and getting Alpha Tauri back on level terms with Alpine in the battle for fifth in the Constructors' Championship. So was it perfection? It's very close to it. Um, I could, uh, I should have uh, written written up my answer about Charles Leclerc's performance in the United States Grand Prix and his anonymous brilliance there and then just read it out now and just changed the names of the driver in the circuit because it was that, it's that vein of, uh, in that vein of performances. Um, Gasly has had so many... Uh, so many weekends this year where he's qualified super well. I think he's been, um, I think he's been on the front three rows of the grid like more often than not. But they've done an amazing job, Gasly and AlphaTauri at times, of converting this pace into not a representative result. Um, so, but but this is what he's capable of when he just sort of gets his head down, uh, has a pretty undramatic race, and and can just just crack on. Um, it's it's ghastly. It's ghastly at his best. Um, this from from the get go this weekend. Alpatari looked looked very competitive. So um, I think I think the main thing is you, you pointed out they've now they've closed that gap to Alpine in the championship. It was about time they finally converted one some of their pace advantage into a into a big swing. So I think from that point of view, this has to go down as an extremely good weekend, even though. Yuki Tsunoda wasn't in the picture because obviously he had a grid penalty for an engine change, even though he was super fast um, and then got eliminated in the sort of secondary incident at turn one where there was the kerfuffle behind the spinning Bottas and then there's the cars um, scattered across in in, in avoidance. Um, Tsunoda and Mick Schumacher ended up being wiped out by hitting either side of Esteban Ocon's Alpine. Esteban Ocon loves getting wedged between people on the first lap of races. It seems to happen to him uh, rather a lot. But yeah, really good performance from Gasly. I watched his qualifying lap. He's just able to be really committed and positive with the car. The, the only minor criticism of his qualifying lap is he lost a tiny bit of time in the last corner, just starts a bit too much at the rear end. But that didn't make any difference. He was still comfortably clear of the of the Ferrari. So a really good performance from him. We'll have some more on AlphaTauri and Yuki Tsunoda in particular in a moment. But first, we'd like to tell you about NordVPN. A VPN is a virtual private network, which is exactly what it sounds like, a way to protect yourself when you're online. 
VPNs are a key tool of the trade for journalists like Scott, Mark and myself because we spend so much of the year on the road and we're always using unsecured public Wi-Fi in all sorts of places, hotels, coffee shops, airports, media centres, etc. So logging on using a VPN is essential for security. But you don't have to chase the F1 circus around the world for a VPN to be invaluable. Why? Because it allows you to hide your IP address and you can also change your virtual location in order to access geo-locked websites. That means we can access emails and social media platforms in the occasional country that isn't quite so open with its internet and also get everything we would be able to access when at home. But while that was the reason we originally got VPNs many years ago, what really matters is how effective it is in terms of security and encryption. Online security is so important for everyone, making NordVPN a must-have. NordVPN is also as fast as Max Verstappen on race day in Mexico. That's a really important thing because some VPNs can make it difficult when you need your high-speed internet, but you, you have no problem with NordVPN at all. We've got it running now to connect to Mark Hughes to record this podcast podcast and it's every bit as fast as you need internet to be. Also easy to use, you can jump between 60 odd countries at the touch of a button to change your virtual location and set it up to connect automatically whenever you log on. And I'm going to have to mention my favourite VPN related phrase which is encryption tunnel because creating an encryption tunnel is at the heart of the security and sounds like the cutting edge F1 technology we all love. And the good news is there is a special Cyber Month deal available. Head to nordvpn.com forward slash the race and that's the race with no hyphen or use the code the race to get up to 73% off your NordVPN plan, as well as the bonus of one month free. This is a limited time offer, so you better be quick. The price for the two-year plan has dropped from $89 to $79, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to nordvpn.com forward slash the race right now to sign up. Well, let's get back to Yuki Tsunoda. Mark, he came in for some stick from Christian Horner and Helmut Marko after qualifying, saying that Red Bull was Tsunoda'd because he was in the way on those final Q3 laps. A legitimate complaint, do you think? No, I think it was too harsh. I think, um, yeah, in hindsight, it would have been better if he'd um, just pressed on after giving Gasly his toe to, to get out the way as quickly as possible. Um, but he's been guided by the team, and they tell him just before the, the, the fast section where you can't really get offline. Um, and so he does... Well, you know, it's not a stupid idea of, of just getting onto the, the runoff there to create space on the track. And, um, yeah, that, that created a big dust cloud, which, you know, as you'll have seen, uh, distracted Perez and led him to run, go the runoff and made Max have to lift in expectation of a yellow and, 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 and. So um, it was just unfortunate. I don't think really uh, Yuki should have been singled out for a particular blame on that. I think he should have had a little bit more guidance from the team, perhaps. You wrote a piece of, on this in defence of Yuki Sonoda, Scott. Christian Horner did say after the race that having had a chance to reflect that Sonoda could have been helped with more information from the team, but he did also complain about his comments on TV after the qualifying session being somewhat selectively used on social media in particular. But you do have little sympathy for them, do you? Well, yeah, it's not it's not specifically against uh, Horner or Red Bull, but... Um... But I just have uh, I just have little sympathy for anyone who gets quoted completely accurately and then regrets what they've said and then tries to claim that their quotes have been taken out of context or or something like that. So yeah, I, I just feel that I, I just feel that it was just badly handled. Um, Mark Mark sum, summed up what happened in the position that Yuki was put in absolutely spot on. But it was just it was frustrating because Horner said that it would be a, you know it would be a sad world if 
we weren't able to freely criticize drivers for their performance. Completely agree. A te- and a team boss, there's there's no reason for a team boss or a member of management or whatever to criticize one of their own. That's absolutely fine. As long as you're not throwing them under the bus, then honest criticism, constructive criticism is absolutely fine. For example, um, if earlier in the year when Horner was saying that Red Bull really needed Perez to get his act together, basically, because he was costing them points and that Max was losing out against Mercedes. Completely valid. It's it's fact-based. It's it's not an issue to say that. Same thing with what Wolf was saying about Mercedes, mainly Bottas, not quite doing a good enough job on the run to turn one. It's 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 valid criticism of a, of a, of an incident that these drivers have played a part in. It's something to do with their own performance. But for this situation... You know, Yuki did Yuki did nothing wrong. If there was any irritation to be appointed anywhere, it was Alpha Tauri for not managing the situation as well as they could have. So I just thought, considering the years Sonoda's had, I don't think F1 drivers should ever be wrapped in cotton wool. But we know that Sonoda's had a hard year and there's been a massive effort from Alpha Tauri to rebuild his confidence. He's just starting to build a bit of momentum. He's having a good weekend. He's played the perfect team player for Alpha Tauri in that session, giving Gasly a toe worth one and a half temps down the main straight made himself have to start on the soft tyre because he used softs to guarantee he'd be in Q3 to give Gasly that toe, was super quick, out-qualified all of the other guys who had back-of-the-grid penalties, and his reward for that is to be needlessly sledged by two senior members of his ultimate management. So I just thought it was massively counterproductive and, and actually a little bit nasty. Yeah, there have been times where I've defended the Red Bull treatment of drivers because it's elite sport top end of course the standards are high but I don't think this was a particularly reasonable position if they have a problem with it they should be speaking to Franz Tost and the way so I've just been interrupted by Scott's friends in the corridor making a lot of noise I started early this weekend if you hear anything strange in the background you know what that is but yes yeah I I think Sonoda needed the team to help him and put him into a better position because it's just not it's not fun when you're kind of cruising around he was given a delta to, to drive to so he wasn't doing it out of choice. So it was just the circumstances Sonoda was put in. He maybe could have done a tiny bit better, but I think it was the the, the position he was in that, that caused the situation. But Mark, let's move on to Ferrari. Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz finished fifth and sixth, with McLaren managing just one point. Thanks to Lando Norris's recovery drive to 10th, following a power unit change that left him 19th on the grid. That puts them 13 and a half points clear in the battle for third in the Constructors' Championship. And Ferrari has now outscored McLaren in each of the last three races. So do you think that battle has decisively turned in favour of Ferrari now? Um, probably yes. It, it, I think... Um some of the circuits we've got coming up, um, looking at them, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, sort of look a bit like McLaren circuits. You know, they've got those fast, high-speed curves where the um, where the McLaren is really good. So I think that they'll still have something to say in this contest, but if I was asked to put my money on who would secure that third place, yes, it would, it would definitely be Ferrari. Yeah, they've got the momentum, and it's quite clear that the the hybrid upgrade has played a part. And in fact, Scott, a question from Simon T, who incidentally says he is fully in Valtteri Bottas' sympathy corner with you. But he says that obviously the Norris engine penalty and Ricardo incident flattered the Ferrari results in terms of points, but they really have stepped up their game. Is it all purely linked to the engine upgrade they've made? Uh, I don't think it's purely linked to it, but it's obviously given them a, a key edge. I think uh, Leclerc's talked before about... Um, the the team hasn't really introduced upgrades to 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 its car. I can't remember if or when the the last aero upgrade on the the Ferrari was. So obviously the hybrid is the main change in terms of 
the actual hardware of the car itself. There's no doubt about that. But there's also the optimization. We know earlier this year, for example, they were having a lot of problems with um, with managing the tires during during races. You know, it, it seemed to be inconsistent. Some weekend they'd be fine, but then a few weekends they were they were really struggling. But they've they've really got like a a, a nice rhythm going in terms of their race performance race performances at, at the moment and Leclerc and Sainz are both pushing each other more and more and more the more Sainz is comfortable in the car the more points he's winning them um, and the more he's helping Leclerc raise his game so I just think that as this year's gone on I think that whole package has just got better and better and the power unit change the upgrade on the hybrid system has obviously then given the package a little bit more potential and the whole organisation is doing a really good job of, of maximising that potential. So I just think they're getting better and better. Let's move on to Aston Martin, Mark. A mixed bag for them. Sebastian Vettel did a good job to finish seventh from ninth on the grid. His second points finish on the bounce, but Lance Stroll crashed at the final corner in a qualifying session where the best starting position he could possibly have earned was 17th, given his power unit changes. Given the pace of that car, a strong weekend from Vettel though. Yeah, uh, probably about par, I would have said. He probably got what was there available from that car. I wouldn't say he transcended it. Um, you know, to transcend it, you would have been nudging it into Q3 rather than just missing Q3. Well, I think um, that was about right. And he did a, a clean race, a good professional, solid performance. Um, as for Stroll bidding it on uh, before he even um, completed a lap, uh, when it was not really need to be doing anything at all, other than going going round to register the fact that you were there, that that seemed a bit um, unnecessary. But uh, oh yeah, it's sort of a on the whole a, a positive a positive weekend in the the, the, the seventh place points is uh, a useful haul for a car that's um, you know up a Q up a Q two at, at best. Joel did actually manage to complete that lap, at least. He, he just crossed the timing beam in completing his crash, but it wasn't quite centre at Manny Cor, was it, with that uh, spin across the line at the end of his qualifying lap? <laughs> yeah. yeah it was, um, I was surprised, actually, by the, um, the apparent violence of the impact because it looked a relatively slow. As it was happening, as he lost control, you could see he was, you know, was going to hit the barriers, but it, it didn't look like it was going to be that big a blow, but it was actually quite... Um, Quite a hefty one when it hit, wasn't it? Yeah, I think probably surprised him a bit when it when it happened. But yeah, a, a costly one and one that he really didn't need to have. Had a fairly pointless race from there. But he did pull a nice move on George Russell. So that was at least something to, to liven things up. But he wasn't particularly delighted given it was a, a minor position he was fighting for. But Scott, let's move on to Alfa Romeo. Actually, the best results of the season with eighth for Kimi Räikkönen, and that keeps alive the vague hopes of reclaiming eighth place from Williams, given there's now a 12-point gap. But it could so easily have been better, with Antonio Giovinazzi unhappy with his strategy that cost him a potential seventh place. Seems to be the same old story for Alpha, doesn't it? As even when they get their best results, it could have been more. Yeah, it's, um, it's just typical, isn't it? That you can still pick holes in a in a result like this. So it's, what, 12 points to Williams now? So it could be maybe not half that, but it could certainly be smaller. It could certainly be single single digits um, after this weekend. Uh, I, I I have a lot of sympathy for Giovinazzi. Um, he, he did a good, he, he did a good job. He, he put himself in a, in a, in a strong position. How many times this year has he either through, through his own errors or just through circumstance fallen out of the, the top 10 early on looked like he was setting himself up for a, for a decent result. And then the team just makes what turns out to be a howler of a strategic decision and uh, yeah, the um, 
Giovinazzi had uh, a complete sense of humour failure about it. He wasn't in the mood to to entertain it, play the team game at the end of it. He sarcastically congratulated the team on the slowdown lap for this for the strategy. Um, and honestly, he's just the way he spoke and just the way he he clearly was. He looks like a driver who knows his days in in that team are numbered. Yeah, Antonio is very much a company man after race. He's had plenty of opportunity over the years to complain about bad strategies or mistakes that weren't his own. But this time he actually did uh, did complain about it. Our Chevy Pujolar about it after the race, and he just said that they they didn't for a moment think that they were going to get held up by a Mercedes because they uh, pitted Giovinazzi. He was sixth under the safety car, slipped to seventh at the restart in seventh place, holding it fine ahead of Vettel. But they, they brought him in presumably to defend against undercuts and maybe even have a little bit of a, a dash at jumping one of the Ferraris, but it's quite early. And then he just ended up stuck behind Bottas, who was himself stuck behind Ricardo, And of course, Ricardo in a fractionally damaged car that probably wasn't at its absolute best. So yeah, it looked like a little bit of a risky move at the time. So yeah, unfortunate for for them. But Kimi Raikkonen, one of his one of his stronger weekends of the year. I did ask him if he felt this was his best all-round weekend because it was his best qualifying performance. He started 10th, but he was 12th fastest. He felt he'd had a few good ones. Russia, he pointed out, but I think this was this was up there. And good to see Raikkonen having a uh, a good result in one of his last Grand Prix. Mark Alpine had another poor weekend. Esteban Ocon had a back of the grid penalty. He then outpaced Alonso in Q1 to ensure the Spaniard was eliminated. Alonso managed a pretty good race, ninth place ahead of Norris. But where's that Alpine pace gone recently? They don't seem to know. Um, so, yeah, I don't. So, there's an inconsistency with the car. It's just Alonso almost set a very quick lap, um, but lost a whole chunk of time, which suggests some either aero consistency or lack of full understanding of the tyres. But there's something just not being understood there because its form is so erratic. And has been throughout the season. And this is just sort of following a, a similar pattern to last year, really. It's a little bit concerning, I would, I would say, if I was, um, you know, in, in, in the place of uh, Fernando or Esteban looking, looking to the future. Yeah, it was a strange one. Alonso, actually, on his first Q1 lap, he was, I think, six tenths faster by the time he got to turn seven, which is the point the red flag came out on that first Q1 lap than he was on his real lap. And he was all over the place in the sweepers in the middle of the lap on his on his later lap. So whether the tyres weren't there. But yeah, clearly some understanding missing. And of course, they're now level with AlphaTauri in that battle for fifth in the constructors. They they kind of vaulted ahead of them with that miracle hungry weekend. But now, yeah, the, the pendulum's swinging more in favour of, of AlphaTauri. But Scott's at the back, we had George Russell, 16th ahead of Williams' teammate Nicholas Latifi, and then Haas driver Nikita Mazepin. For Williams, it was a difficult day as they had to do loads of management of temperatures. So even though Russell was briefly ninth early on, points were never really on and he just went backwards but once again Haas radio comms are in the limelight with Nikita Mazepin unhappy not to be allowed to go past Mick Schumacher during Q1 what do you make of the way that team is working I just think it speaks to the awkwardness and the tension that it just exists within that team at the moment that uh, Mazepin just would go as far as declaring that that there are different rules for the other side of the garage he's suggesting that there's favoritism for for, for Mick, um, which isn't the case at all. It was just simple team policy that Mazepin wanted to try to uh, exploit. I think it goes back to Zandvoort. I think it goes back to when there was um, uh, there was a disagreement there about uh, they, they have the running order that they that they, they go out on tracking for track position every weekend. But at Zandvoort, I think it was 
Mazepin was on track first, but Schumacher wanted to do a faster outlap to prep the tyres. So the team, so Mick asked if he could overtake the team, allowed him to, and Mazepin thought that that was breaking team protocol, tried to overtake him again. So it was this whole thing at Zandvoort, but it got resolved with a pretty simple explanation. So here, Mazepin thought that he needed to, he, he wanted to hurry up basically with his outlap. He felt that Schumacher was holding him up. So he asked to overtake him. He was told no. And then I think he replied, are you joking? And quick as a flash, probably your favourite radio message of the season, I think, Ed. Yeah, Komatsu stepped in and just said, no, I'm not joking. If you want to make space for temperature, back off and do it. So so Komatsu was clearly ready for that uh, that particular moment. It's not ideal for, for Hassa, actually, as Gunter Steiner pointed out. It probably worked out better for Mazepin because he had his tyres at the right temperature window and no traffic on his, his Q1 lap, whereas Schumacher had a few problems. So I feel Mazepin is a better driver than he's been able to show. But I feel the reason he's not showing it is down to his approach and the mindset doesn't seem to be quite there. I just like him to just sort of knuckle down and focus on himself rather than these sort of external things and the battle with with Schumacher. But yeah, another weekend on which he he wasn't at Schumacher's level. But Mark, we're off to Brazil next with, of course, the third and final sprint race weekend of the season. The form book has been torn up so many times this season, but can you reassemble it into some kind of prediction for what might lie in wait at Interlagos? Oh, I don't want to do predictions, but um, in the Lagos, it's actually you know it, it's being touted as a Red Bull track, but I, I don't see it that way. It's they've, they've been very successful there, but um, I think there's a the, if if you look at the, the the ways of being competitive in in, in the Lagos, there's many ways to do it. it you've got um you've got two sectors uh, which uh, re- reward one thing in another sector which uh, is about the same length as the other two combined which rewards another in terms of downforce uh, and drag so uh, you can be quick with all sorts of different wing setups you can do a very similar lap time so I think there's probably not going to be that much difference between the two main contenders there in it certainly if um, if it's not running the wet in, in the wet you'd always you'd be thinking towards the car with the more downforce, which is the the Red Bull. But in the dry, no, I I, I see this one as quite open um, between them. So I I think it's going to be close. I think it really, um, you know, Mercedes is uh, on the back foot in terms of the points championship, but I don't think it has anything to fear from any of the tracks coming up now. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, Interlagos is always a great place to go. I'm a little bit suspicious about weather forecasts this far out, but it does sound like it's going to be relatively cool there. So that presumably brings the threat of rain. And it's just a circuit where things happen, isn't it? You can overtake there. As you say, there's a good compromise between the the different parts of the track in terms of pace. So it feels like a weekend where probably whoever does the better job will be ahead. Whereas you almost feel like this weekend in Mexico, no matter how good a job Mercedes did, if Red if Red Bull did a decent job at the same level, they'd be ahead. But it's going to be, I think it's going to be a, a really interesting one. But Scott, momentum in the championship is going Red Bull's way, isn't it? Uh, not if you ask Max Verstappen, because he says he doesn't believe in momentum. Uh, but I think it is. I think we're, I think we're now in a position where Verstappen has taken control of the drivers' championship. Uh, he could come away from Brazil with more than a race win in in hand over Hamilton, which I think would. Um, all but settle the drivers' championship in his favour, and obviously now Red Bull has, has clawed back a pretty big gap that Mercedes had in the constructors' championship. So all to play for. We go to a cool place, cool track, 
that has a history of uh, making the unpredictable happen. So I am also look, very much looking forward to it. I think it's going to be great. Yeah, as we've seen this year, so many times it's been going one way, then it goes the other, then it goes the other, then it goes the other, and it looks like someone's going to run away with it, and they don't. So let's just hope that continues, because as I've been saying all season, all I want is for it to go down to the last lap of the last race in Abu Dhabi. So let's hope it does. Well, thanks to Scott and Mark for your insights. Head to therace.com for Mark's race analysis, my driver ratings, and all the post-race analysis, including Scott's look at the Sonoda situation. And make sure you check out our YouTube channel as well. And also there's our sister podcasts, including the Race MotoGP podcast, and the Race IndyCar podcast. We're now going to hotfoot it south to Sao Paulo to one of our favourite circuits on the calendar, Interlagos. We'll be back soon with everything you need to know from the Brazilian Grand Prix. (laughs) 